Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... When I started Chugging Entertainment, we started building internet databases. We started, you know, communicating with fans, building up mailing lists. We got it to a point where some tours, you, you can just announce the tour on socials and you sell out. In the past few decades, Apple iPods, then iPhones, Spotify and now COVID have all seriously disrupted the music industry. Part two of our chat reveals how Michael Chug navigated those serious minefields to help musicians and the live music scene not only survive, but thrive. And as musicians campaign right now, urging all Australians to get vaccinated, how does Chug see a future for the live music scene post-COVID-19? Well, back when Michael Chugg's fast-expanding music promotion empire was in full swing by the late 90s, he moved to diversify into producing even bigger events, festivals and one-off benefit concerts. He ventured into theatre and the world of musicals that he helped take on to Broadway and the West End. Building up his business through this period, was marked by the realisation that not only did his organisation have the capacity to mount these events, but that he could produce events that, in his mind, went beyond pure entertainment and really made a difference. Chug stepped up with other stalwarts of the music industry to mount events like Wave Aid, an all-star music concert involving bands like Midnight Oil and Powderfinger for victims of the Boxing Day tsunami, and it raised $2 million back in 2005. Sound Relief, a benefit concert at the MCG and the SCG on the same day, raised money for Victorian bushfire and Queensland flood victims in 2009. But one of Michael Chugg's less well-known roles that he doesn't talk about much was in helping develop the Paralympic Games into a world-class, quality, hugely successful event that it is today. And that began with his involvement in the lead-up to the Sydney 2000 Games. Let's hear from Michael Chugg. His insights just might surprise you. Michael Chug, thanks for being with us for part two. Now, in the early 2000s, you start to really diversify and either create or co-produce big group events or festivals. I mean, the Long Way to the Top stage show, which was a massive success, the Wave Aid charity event for the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami victims. It was held at the MCG. And I think in those days, you raised well over $2 million. The East Coast Blues Fest, you know, musicals through this period. How did that growth go and and why did you decide to diversify? It all started really, uh, the first event I did when I started Chug Entertainment was a New Year's Eve show for Channel 7 down at Darling Harbour. But more importantly than that, I was at the 1996 Atlanta Paralympic Games. I was very heavily involved with Yossi Unity and I still am and 
everyone were giving a finger and people like that. But I was at the 1996 Paralympic Games with Yossi Indy, who were doing the handover appearance for the 2000 Sydney Paralympics. I was there with the band, Lois Appleby, who was the chief CEO of the Paralympics in Sydney, and Karen Richards, an event producer, who produced the opening closing ceremonies, of which I was part of her team. And uh, the Atlanta Paralympics, I couldn't believe, flying into Atlanta and looking out the window of the plane, they were pulling the Olympic Village down and Atlanta looked like a bomb zone because they were just ripping it all down. It didn't take long to realise, going to the stadium and just being there, that the Paralympics were treated like just a non-event. No one in Atlanta wanted to know about it. It was quite disgusting. I mean, we got the Indy were appearing on the opening ceremony. We get to the stadium and the dressing rooms have got fetus and water in them and it was just disgusting. And broadcast of the Olympic had cut all the coaxial cables so that the Paralympics couldn't use it. The Paralympians were, it, it was just disgusting the way they were treated. You know, we did the show and it's a long story. We the American second-rate, third-rate production people who were doing the opening ceremonies tried to screw us over and put us on an outdoor stage. The American mama who drove me in a taxi told me from the airport was telling me that it had rained for 19 days straight. And so the morning of the opening ceremony, Rothy Indy came out to the stadium and we got some gummies and we did a smoking dance and ceremony to stop the rain. Yeah, because we were on an outdoor stage with no PA set up properly, no lighting or anything. We were just being treated horribly. Michael Knight, who was running the whole Olympics for Australia at the time, yep. came, was on the ground. He came over and he said, Chucky, what are you doing? I said, we're doing a dance so it doesn't rain tonight. And unbeknownst to the American producers, we, our crew got with the American crew and we got the lights reset onto our stage and we got the sound fixed up and... We just went on in beautiful moonlight and absolutely destroyed it. The Paralympians were crawling up the nets at the front of the stage because Yossi and you were a huge band in Europe and all over the world. And to be playing there in front, and we stole the show off all the old American acts that came on later. And the American producers wanted to throw us out of the stadium. And uh, we were told we'd never work in America again. Oh, gosh. When Mundawoy and I went back to the Australian headquarters, at the, I think it was the Travel Lodge at the time, we walked into the upstairs where all the heavyweights were and we got a standing ovation because of what we'd done. But the Americans, when we went to go back to the hotel, the bus driver, our bus driver had disappeared. So we were standing there not knowing what we were going to do, or obviously being told to get lost and not to, and just to leave us. So there was this old guy who'd been in the pre-parade in a 1900s fire engine, and he pulled up alongside us and uh, said, what are you doing? And we said, oh, we're stuck. We've got no way of getting back to the hotel. So we all jumped on the back of this fire engine. Oh. <laughs> in there and their instruments and their didgeridoos. And we started playing music all through the ghettos. Oh, wow. It was incredible. All the people were coming out cheering and people driving past and singing in Sydney. And next day at the uh, airport and all the Paralympians were there getting on planes and I was determined. that. And Lois Appleby and Karen, we all felt the same, that Sydney would take the Paralympics to another level. And we did. We sold out the opening closing ceremonies. 
We had amazing entertainment. Uh, all the events were uh, well attended and it became a very classy event. And, of course, I'm sitting here watching it now from Tokyo. What, I'm very proud of that. And that, that really, you know, made us realise that we could do things that meant something and that led to the wave aid situation and, you know, sound relief, which we did when we did Melbourne. MCG in Sydney in the one day. So I was all really inspired by what we did and for the Paralympics. And I've never really stood up and said, oh, but I'm very, very proud of where it's gone and what it's become. It's become an incredible event looked on as, as the Olympics are looked on. Yeah. And we have what to do with that. And I'm very proud of that. But, you know, Wave 8, I was spending a lot of time in Thailand um, I was meant to be there when that tsunami happened, but my mm. younger son who was going with me decided there was no surf, so he didn't want to go, so I stayed home. And I got a call from uh, some of the industry people saying we want to do a show at the Horden Pavilion to raise money for the tsunami, and we ended up, of course, doing the Sydney Cricket or the Sydney Sports Stadium, wherever we ended up. A Sydney Sports Day. Yeah, the SCG. We ended up doing it. We had an amazing lineup of acts. Mark Pope, who put it together with me, got Midnight Oil and Powderfinger and bands like that to get it all going on. And it was an amazing thing. And so, you know, it's I'm very proud of all those things that we've done. Yeah, extraordinary achievement, Michael, that you've really grown and developed, particularly the Paralympics. And you then sort of co-produced musicals and theatrical productions. I mean, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, the musical, you co-produced that with Gary McQueen and that eventually went to Broadway. I mean, you know, was that just financial support or? We put money into it. We believed in it. I had a lot of time for Gary and Liz Coops and we got involved in it and we had money in London, we had money in America and, uh, yeah, no, it was quite a journey. I mean, it was great to be involved in that. I mean, it, it, theatre is a very hard thing. You know, we had a little bit of dabbling through the decades in theatre, but it's never something that I really was very interested in. But Liz had come to me and we did Tap Dogs and that yep. was quite a successful tour. And then they came up, they wanted to do Priscilla. So we got involved. And we obviously, our experience of doing shows and events, they was a help to them. And I was very pleased to be involved. I sat in on meetings in New York with the New York Theatre. That's a whole another different story, that world. But yeah, no, it was great to be involved, but yeah. we haven't really gone back into theatre at all. Yeah, well, still, I mean, in the 2000s, by 2009, you're doing this massive ACDC tour around Australia. I think it was some kind of record, wasn't it? You sold something like over 700,000 tickets. Yeah, I held the record with Robbie Williams. We'd done about 630,000 in ACDC, who I, I actually, back in the early 70s, I did all their Australian dates. Michael Browning was their manager and I did all the, their very their very first show in Australia was a concert I did with Stevie Wright. At the, it was the first rock concert ever at the Sydney Opera House and ACDC was the support act. So we were quite heavily involved with ACDC in the early days and then the opportunity came up to co-promote with Gary Van Egmond and we did that huge tour together. It was incredible. 
Yeah, extraordinary. But you've also had sellout tours for Prince and Simon and Garfunkel. You brought Dolly Parton to Australia. I think that was the first time in several decades. 25 years, yeah. Yeah, right. You also backed great local talent like Flume and Tame Impala, Sarah Blasco. I mean, you're a great active spotter and supporter of talent still today, local talent. Tell me, do you mind telling me about Lime Cordial, what there are Sydney Northern Beaches? You're their main manager. How did they come to you? They've won a slew of ARIA awards just recently. Back in 2013, I hadn't been managing for quite a while. I got out of it. I think I was looking after Billy Thorpe for years when he came home. And you mentioned Long Way to the Top before. That was an incredible event that changed a lot of things for the older talent in this country. Also brought a lot of the young and older talent together and was a very creative time. But in 2013, I was getting calls. I was fielding calls from Brian Brown who wanted me to go and see this young band from the Northern Beaches called Lime Cordial. And at the same time, I was also getting calls from a guy called Baraka Tower, a PNG native who had been in Yossi Indy, and he wanted me to go and look at a band called Shepherd. So eventually Shepherd came down and did an audition in the back room of my office, and my young staff and everybody thought they had great harmonies and good songs, and One night I went to the Metro into the Bears Den, the small venue at the Metro on George Street, and Yossi Indy were playing, and I thought, wow. So we took on both bands at the same time. We started Chug Music as a management company and also as a label. And basically, you know, we've been developing artists for now going on eight, nine years. Shepard had a huge worldwide hit with Geronimo. Lime Cordial, we were building them up. They were releasing songs and learning to play live, and eventually it exploded and they've been, you know, had 11 songs in the Triple J Hot 100 the last two years in a row and nine, 10 gold and platinum singles. They'd, before COVID hit, they America and England were really happening. We're hoping to get back there early next year. But it was just building acts and, you know, we at the moment we have, Quite a roster we picked up in 2019. We picked up Casey Barnes, the Gold Coast-based country act. He's about to have his sixth number one country hit in a row in this country. We've got a young girl called Mia Rodriguez who we found on TikTok, who we signed recently to Atlantic Records in New York. Her first worldwide single was getting huge reviews at the moment. We just signed another band called Teenage Dads from Melbourne who Lime Cordial actually discovered. So we're very pleased with what's going on. During the COVID thing, we've been able to develop online concerts and appearances and a whole lot of stuff. Michael, the music business, you mentioned it briefly before, has sort of really turned upside down since when you started in the 60s and 70s. I mean, the the Apple iPod changed things. Then the iPhone, when music was carried around in your pocket. Then I guess the streaming services like Spotify disrupted again. And now COVID is severely disrupting live music. What was the biggest change you felt? And what I guess is the biggest opportunity out of those disruptions? You said you saw the internet as a huge opportunity way back when. Yeah, yeah, well, we did. And when I started Chugging Entertainment, we started building internet, you know, on the internet. We started building databases. We started, you know, communicating with fans. 
building up mailing lists. We've got it to a point where some tours you you can just announce a tour on socials and you sell out. Wow. You know, and, uh, you know, it's very powerful. And when you look at what we've done, you know, Shepherd do, are doing at the moment 15 million streams a month worldwide. Extraordinary. So, Michael, what's the path to success for a musician or an act, say, in Australia these days? I mean, say, well, even with COVID, you're really saying it's got to be the internet. But is the path still perhaps, I don't know, first doing the pubs, then you've got to get radio play? Yeah, well, Lime Cordial um, is a good example. I mean, we were selling out 2,000 capacity rooms. We've never had air, never had airplay on Triple J or anywhere. So what, no radio touched them? No, they were building their own. We were selling out and then Triple J added a single called Dirt Cheap and we haven't looked back. And to maintain now the the fact that, you know, Triple J have been playing the band now for what, it must be getting close to three years, to still be relevant and current and a major act on Triple J, you know, some acts come out, they have huge hits and you never hear anymore. I mean, the whole thing's changed now and the internet's certainly helping us keep in touch with the audiences, but we miss the live thing. It's yeah. the live, like, you know, Lime Cordial have a tour in October, which is Melbourne, Sydney, Perth, Brisbane, which is basically sold out. But, you know, obviously there's not a good chance that we might have to postpone. We've had to postpone their sell-out New Zealand tour four times. You know, and you're battling with that all the time. I mean, Shepard are doing a show on September the 4th in Brisbane, Tivoli, and we were told we could have a 1,000 out of 1,500 people under the restrictions. On Monday this week, we were told it was, that was now back to 670. Oh. Today, we've been told it's back to 1,000. You're battling all this stuff all the time, but we all need to be playing live. And yeah. hopefully the government making the stance that when we get to 70, 80%, all the states going to have to just be involved and, and get on with it. And you've got the Perth Premier still saying, well, they're not going to be changing anything. So it's all so uncertain. Nobody knows what's happening. So you still want and need the live component to come back. Live is why Australian acts, if, if COVID hadn't happened, 2020 would have seen a monstrous, monstrous explosion of Australian talent worldwide. And obviously because no one can go and play live anywhere, all that has been sort of put on hold. But we're still having huge success with Tones and I. We're still having huge success with Gang of at the moment who are top 10 all over the world. But it's being done without being able to play live. A lot more bands would be on the same level. Yeah. So, Michael, where does Spotify fit in for artists? Do they have to be on it and do they make any money from it? Oh, yeah. You, you, yeah, the money, you know, it's not huge. But, see, no one, everybody seems to, when they, everybody's criticising Spotify about how little money you get, I remember back when we were doing deals with the major record labels and you'd be lucky to make five cents out of an album. Nowadays, you're making a couple of cents out of each song. So it all balances out. And, of course, if you're doing 100 million streams a year, they're not bad checks. And if you're getting radio airplay in America and Germany and Holland and places like that, 
the airplay royalties that you get are quite incredible. Yeah. So it all adds up, you know, and then you, you know, you get syncs like Shepherd have a sync with Queensland Tourism where they've been the music, their song coming home has been the music for the Gold Coast marketing for the last three years. The money's very substantial. NBC just used their track Solid Gold as the theme song for the marketing for the Olympics. And you get songs in movies, a couple of tracks in American Ninja, or you get in a couple of songs on American Idol or on The Voice. The checks are great. Yeah. So there's a lot of income streams that come have come into play over the last few years, and it all adds up. But being able to, I mean, if... if COVID hadn't happened, Live Cordio would be one of the biggest live live bands in the world right now. You're hoping that will happen when we get back to normal. Are you sort of confident the scene, the live scene, will recover perhaps late 2022, 23? Yeah, we we think it should be all, hopefully, God willing, it'll all be back to normal in 23. Hopefully the back end of 22 will get easier and we'll be able to do stuff. At this stage, we are holding uh, January, February, March. We have Lime Cordial touring and on sale in uh, England, Europe and America. Hopefully we're going to be able to make that work and, you know, we get back on the road. I mean, Shepherd have had three number one radio number ones in Holland. I mean, the offers we're getting to play in the Netherlands and Belgium and Germany and places like that are incredible. But right now, no one can go and do it. I mean, America and England are both enough, but there's still problems. I mean, in America, they've been speaking to a couple of American agents and shows they put on sale late 10 weeks ago, they're now postponing or cancelling because it's still not sorted out properly. The Australian music industry are about to start a massive get vaccinated campaign with all the promoters and all the artists and everybody. We've got to do our part. We've got to we've got to get it all going and we've got to get vaccinated because until we do, we've got no hope. Michael, I just want to ask a couple of sort of final questions. When you first got going in this business, say in the early 70s really, was yours a big vision? I'm going to be one of the most successful music promoters ever, or was it, well, we'll just see how this one series of concert goes? Oh, look, I look back and, you know, I moved from Launceston to Melbourne to Sydney and I look back and I sometimes think, you know, I wonder what it had been like if I had gone to Los Angeles or London in the 70s and South there. But I have no regrets about it. Yes, I wanted to be a huge promoter. I mean, obviously, I mean, my idols were Bill Graham, the legendary San Francisco promoter, Harvey Goldsmith, the legendary English promoter. They were, I looked up to those people and, you know, obviously I got to know them and I started going to music conferences worldwide in the in the 80s and I learned a lot of a lot of those people and you know our dream I used I know Michael Gidinski and I used to go to New York and LA and places like that together and the dream was to break Australian music I saw Michael come so close with acts like JoJo Zepp and the Falcons and the Sports and Split Ends and all those sort of bands and I had Kevin Boric and Richard Clapton I was involved with the church I mean to be sitting where we are right now with Australian music, once we get through all this mess, I think it's going to be a magical time for Australian music. 
Yeah. How would you describe your leadership style? I just, I look, I just guide people. I mean, one of the greatest young people in our business, Susan Heyman, who's my managing director, I mean, she started with me 15-odd years ago as an intern. One of the great things is, you know, having a team and a lot of them have been with me 10 years and also, you know, bringing new people in, like into the Chug Music family. We've got a lot of young people and just guiding and advising. And I lead by example. I'm fairly straight talking. Oh, I am soft hearted. You know, back in the 70s, I'd cover up that by, up by yelling and being a jerk. But I learned over the years that, you know, being nice and having relationships is very, very important. And I'm very proud of my team. And look, we all make mistakes. And the one thing I learned, and you know, you can see with all the changes over the years, you never stop learning in this business. I learn stuff every day, you know, and that's what it's all about. What's one of the toughest things you faced in your career journey? Well, leaving Gdynski in 2000 was very tough. That was a tough thing. I mean, sometimes I think I could be a better father to my three children. And- could have been a better husband, but, you know, music just dominated my life. So, but I, my kids love me and uh, I have great joy with my grandchildren, not that I get to see them much these days, but at least, you know, we can do FaceTime. I haven't seen my partner, Tudemon, who uh, lives in Phuket and we've been together 13 years. I haven't seen her since December. So you get to FaceTime. So, you know, the hardest thing is just dealing with what's going on. and. Mm. You know, I think everybody that I have um, at least can stay busy and and be doing things. And talking to you has just got rid of a couple of hours today. <laughs> Sorry, I've taken so long. Final question. No, no, but you know what I mean. It's like, yeah, yeah. It, no, I know. Well, it, it, that's right. I, I'm lucky to get you now because probably because you haven't got as much on as if you were so busy, you know, pre-COVID. Yeah, well, one hopes that some people listening to this have learnt some stuff out of it. I might have inspired a young musician who uh, is at home writing songs and might have inspired them to put some songs up on the internet and somebody like me or people or peers of mine will hear the songs and pick them up. I mean, that's the one great thing about the internet is that it's broken a lot of music and a lot of artists that would never have got past, you know, sending demo tapes to and not hearing anything back to record labels and publishers. They can now put it up there and all of a sudden, you know, if they've got half a vibe going, they'll have 100,000 kids listening to their music. Yeah, extraordinary. Yeah. So what would you say to others who might want to pursue an idea or a dream, either in business or creatively? Well, if you believe in something and you keep doing it, I used to, you know, my ravers keep banging your head against the wall, eventually the wall will fall down. So if you believe in something and you love something, you can, 99% of the time you will make a success of it. You know, I'm very proud of what I've done and what I've and the doors I've been able to open. And you know, probably one of the great things, given the pandemic right now, is that about 15 years ago, uh, myself and other people in the industry came to the realization that the music industry didn't have 
you know, uh, superannuation, didn't have any health funding, it didn't have any security blankets. So we started Support Act, which has grown into a very major music industry charity. And at the moment, it's supporting, they're getting like a thousand applications a week at the moment for. Oh, for gosh. And I'm very proud of that. And, you know, the fact that the government, who are fairly useless when it comes to the entertainment industry, have actually put. $20 million odd into it over the last 12 or 18 months. But we've also raised a lot of that ourselves and most of the charity things we've been doing, we've been giving all the money to support that. But, you know, we've got thousands of road crew out there and contractors and caterers who have not made one cent in the last 22 months or however long it's been. And we're all trying very hard to keep all those people together and, Support Act's become a major part of that. And the government is doing their best, I mean, in a weird sort of way, but <laughs> we've been very lucky and, you know, we're going through a very bad time right now, but we'll come through it. Well, Michael Chug, we all really hope that the music industry live and, and all aspects of it come back very strongly after COVID. I have so enjoyed speaking to you today. Thank you so much for giving me your time and joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Thank you, Helen, and uh, that's pretty pretty good name for a thing, uh, for a podcast, <laughs> Build It, They'll Come, because that's pretty much what we've been doing. Thank you for talking to me. It's been great. Thanks, Michael. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.